All right, this morning, here's what we're doing. We're going to be focusing on an event in Christian history. It's called Epiphany. Some of you may be familiar with what Epiphany is, and some of you may not. But Epiphany is historically, at least within the Christian calendar, the time when we discuss and celebrate the events that surround the wise men. How many of you are familiar with the wise men? All right, many of you are familiar. Here's what I'm excited to share with you this morning. We're going to get rid of some myths about the wise men. We're going to tell you some of the more historically accurate things that were taking place in and around that time. And not only are we going to do that, we're going to talk about direction in life as it relates to the events that surrounding the lives of the wise men. How many of you believe that it is important that we have direction in life? Good, most of you. Those who don't, well, enjoy. <laughs> but I trust that this is going to be applying uh, to every single one of us this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to be able to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now for this morning's message, we're going to be walking through verses 1 through 12. But for the reading this morning, I'm just going to be reading verses 1 and 2 because this sets up the stage for something pretty exciting that's about to take place. Matthew chapter 2. If you do not know where the book of Matthew is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And when you have it, one of the ways we like to show respect for God's Word here at Pathways, we like to stand for the reading of His Word. So, thank you for standing with me. Here we go. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, now this word magi, it often means uh, wise men. Sometimes people refer to it as kings, uh, as astronomers, that sort of thing. So anyway, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, listen to this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose, and listen, and have come to worship him, which means he's no regular king. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you are God and we are not. And as we are looking into your word this morning, as we're talking about the events that surround these wise men Lord God, I thank you that there is some symbolism in here that point directly to what it meant for your son Jesus, for Jesus, for you to come to earth and be with us. And so, Lord, as we're looking in and as we're trying to learn something from the lives of these wise men and the events that are surrounding the situation, I pray, Lord, that we would have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you this morning. In your holy, precious name we pray, amen. All right, so many of you who know me know that I have a pet peeve when it comes to Christmas. I know, it might sound weird that a pastor has a pet peeve when it comes to Christmas, but I do. I have a legitimate pet peeve. It's the nativity scene. I do. I honestly, I, I can't help myself. I have a pet peeve about the nativity scene. Now, let me qualify this. If you have a nativity scene that you set up every year at home, or if you've ever always wanted a nativity scene at home, Please, by all means, keep it, have it. I'm just not coming over. No, uh, <laughs> no. It's the when they show the wise men at the manger. It's a pet peeve of mine, and the reason it's a pet peeve of mine is because when you actually look into Scripture, 
there's a significant amount of evidence that tells us they weren't there. They weren't at the manger. Now, here's the deal. There is a lot of mystery that's surrounding these people from the East. The story of the wise men is a story of mystery because it presents a lot of questions that we just can't answer. I mean, here's what I mean. Questions like, where did they come from? Well, we don't 100% know. We have an idea, but we don't totally know. How many were there? Okay, how many wise men were there? How, what's that? Three. How many of you say three? Raise your hand if you believe there's three wise men. Yeah, some of you are going, you just don't want to raise your hand because you don't want to get the smack down. That's what it is. <laughs> All right, so it's believed that there were about three wise men, right? But we're not actually sure as to how many wise men there were. And how did they know to follow the star? How did they know? What information were they given? I mean, these are questions that we have that we don't just have answers to that come readily. They seem to come mysteriously out of nowhere to pay homage to this newborn king, and just as mysteriously, they're gone. These guys, they come into the story, they're in the story for a few, a few verses, and then they're gone. And, and it's weird. It's strange. Like, how did they know? And why are they never spoken of again? We don't have a lot of answers about this. The Scripture doesn't give a lot of details, but tradition? Wow, has tradition given us details. Here's what I mean. Tradition says that there were three in that number, that they traveled across on camels, they traveled across the desert, they were silhouetted against the night sky in these great palm trees. You guys know that silhouette, I'm sure. Tradition gives their names as Casper, Melkor, and Balthazar. You heard those names before? No? Yeah, well, that's what tradition gives us. It tells us even where they came from and what they did and where they went. It tells us that they were baptized by Thomas and that they when they died, their bodies were preserved at Constantinople. It also tells us centuries later that their bones were moved to Cologne. And if you have the price of admission, you can still see their bones even to today. Tradition has told us their story in its entirety. The only problem is, in all of that, that's just tradition. It's not history. I'm certain about one thing, that the number of wise men and women increases in every generation as more and more people follow what we know about the wise men rather than what we don't know. So this morning, let's concentrate on what we do know about these wise men and listen very closely because I'm going to ask you a few questions. First question in it, we have to answer is, who were these wise men? Now, I told you I was going to ask you a bunch of questions, so here's one of the questions. How many of them were there? Some, many of you said three, but the Bible tells us that their number, tells us about the number that is in the number of gifts they gave, but the Bible doesn't actually say how many of these wise men there actually were. It doesn't say if there were three or if there were 50. All we know is that there were these three specific kinds of gifts. Now, it's usually depicted as three wise men because there were three gifts. And it does seem the most prominent of these would be the ones who presented the gifts. So our picture of three men giving gifts could be accurate. It could be accurate, no matter how many there actually were. The question that we have, though, is that would you, carry, would you travel great distances carrying precious cargo with just two other people. It'd be odd to travel in a small group like that, especially carrying riches. 
What is evident in the text, and even if you go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, how many of you are familiar with Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12? Many people use it as a wedding passage, right? It says two are better than one, right? A, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. How many of you have heard this passage before at a wedding probably? Well, what you may and or may not know is that that particular passage of Scripture is talking about people journeying through the time of, or the, the ancient time within the Scriptures, it's talking about traveling through the desert on a journey with companions, which is why it says that two are better than one. If one falls down, one can help them up. A pity the man who has no one to help him up, right? Because the idea is if you fall down and get injured, you're alone in the desert, it gets cold, believe it or not. And you're likely more a target to be robbed or to even pass away. So, this idea that there are robbers as you cross the desert was not an uncommon thing. It existed in that day in the same way that it kind of exists today. It seems likely that there might have been a sizable group of travelers, that these men traveling alone would be especially odd if these men had a status that we traditionally ascribe to them. If these were these high prominent people, they've likely got people coming with them. Why? Because high prominent people don't carry things. They have servants for that. That's what it was in that day. And this brings us, of course, to the next question. So were there likely three? It's possible that three people potentially presented the gifts, but it's unlikely there were only three travelers. So the question is, were they kings? Well, now let's look into history. There's a gentleman by the name of Tertullian. He's a historian, uh, lived from 160 to 225 A.D., and he told us about the Magi, and he says that they would have been considered kings, and they would fulfill then the prophecy concerning uh, the prophecy concerning the kings. It says, "And to him shall be given the gold of Arabia, and again the kings of the Arabs and Saba shall bring him gifts." This is taken from Tertullian, Part One, Two Ninety One, Antonician Fathers. I agree with Tertullian that they probably were powerful as kings in their own country. I'd also like to point out that, that they were not kings as you and I would consider kings, in that each was a ruler of their own country. Verse 12 says this, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, listen, they returned to their own country by another route. Not their own countries, not their own kingdoms, their own country, singular by another route. Were they kings? Probably not official kings, but kingly enough that they fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. They may have been richer and more powerful than most kings. They had a lot of wealth. They had enough power that Herod himself did not have them killed on the spot for suggesting his replacement was born. See, one of the things you need to remember about Herod is that Herod killed his own family members because he didn't want them to take the throne from him. So if you've got these strangers that come to you and they say that a child, this new king is born, he likely would have had him killed on the spot unless they were powerful enough that had he done so, there would have been a lot, a lot of consequences to follow. Anyone who opposed him, he killed. And so to come to Herod saying, a new king is born, is as dangerous as it gets. They have knowledge 
and revelation from God. By the time of Jesus' birth, it seems that the Magi would be a blanket word for prophets and seers and magicians and all who would fall into a category that dealt with the supernatural. The most likely place from where they came seems to be Babylon, but we can't even be sure of that. It does seem, though, that no matter how many there were, the most prominent would be the ones bestowing the gifts. And again, it goes back to our depiction of three. So, what do they believe about Jesus? Because in verse 2, it tells us that they came to worship Him. Now, that's unusual language. People don't come and worship kings. This is unusual language. So, what do they believe about Him? The bringing of gifts is important in ancient East when approaching a superior. That's something that we need to note. So they believed that Jesus was superior. Genesis chapter 43, verse 11, 1 Samuel 9, 7 to 8, 1 Kings 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 2, all tell us that when you approach a superior, you bring gifts. It is a way of honoring them. And these magi viewed Jesus to be their superior, so to say the least, and much more if you look closely at the gifts. For example, let's just walk through the gifts. The gift of gold is a gift for a king. Gold was as precious in that day as it is today. Gold represents wealth, obviously. Solomon sat on an ivory throne that was inlaid with gold. Solomon's temple was plated with gold, and we read of golden streets in heaven. So gold represents wealth, and most certainly to represent wealth of a newborn king. Now granted, he was born in poverty and he died in poverty, but he is God's son, and the wealth of the world is his. Were they not sure of the status of the one that they were seeking, would they risk giving away something as valuable as gold? It's unlikely. Their faith is lived out through their gifts. Gold is a gift for a king. Frankincense. Frankincense is incense burned in worship. It's burned towards a God. Frankincense is this glittering, odorous gum obtained by making these little carvings or slices into a tree. It's cutting the bark of an Arabian tree. The yellow sap that comes out is fragrant. It smells great. And then they allow it to harden. And then, after it hardens, they put it into a pot and they begin to burn it, and it gives off this odor, this incense. It was a common practice to burn incense as an offering to a god during this time of history. So frankincense represents worship, the worship of the newborn king, and this may well speak to their view of Jesus, that he was more than a king. And, and here's the thing to also bear in mind. Here are these wise men, and they come to a king. They actually saw two kings in their journey, Herod and Jesus, but they didn't give Herod gifts. No gifts for Herod. I mean, that would make him a little sour too, I'm sure. The gifts were for Jesus, which sets Jesus apart from Herod. And they also viewed Herod to be a king. So their view of Jesus must have been something more 
Frankincense was used in worship. And bear in mind, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 2, or 1 through 2, but specifically verse 2, it said that we may worship Him. Frankincense. And myrrh, well, myrrh was a burial spice. It extrudes from, sorry, myrrh exudes from a tree found in Arabia and a few other places as well, but it was an incredibly valued spice and a a perfume, and it was used to anoint dead bodies, to embalm and preserve them, John 19, verse 39. See, this third gift is another valuable gift, and it may speak that they had knowledge of the purpose for which Jesus came. You see, part of the problem with the wise men is we just have no idea what they knew, why they knew it, how they came to know it. We don't know what documents they were poring over, nothing. We most certainly know that they didn't know where Jesus was. Because Herod secretly has a meeting with them and tells them that he's to be born in Bethlehem. Remember that the wise men came to him and said, where is he? And Herod sends them to Bethlehem. So we know what they didn't know. They didn't know the exact location, but they knew to go to Jerusalem. But the third gift is a valuable gift, and it may speak to the knowledge that they would have had of the purpose that Jesus came. And these gifts that we see here, they're gifts for a king, they're gifts for a God, and for one who came to die, sacrifice. Their gifts speak multitudes. It tells you a lot about them, doesn't it? Well, how about this? When did they arrive? Here we go to my pet peeve, right? When did the wise men arrive? Were there wise men at the manger? We always place them at the nativity scenes, but when you look at the passages of Scripture that we have here, you can't find them at the nativity. Here's what I mean. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says, on coming to the house, the word for house in the Greek is the word oikos. It cannot be confused with stable or manger or cave or anything like that. It specifically means house. They came to his house, and they saw the child, Padion, and that's not a word for an infant. Padion is not an infant. It is a child. So they came to a house where they saw a child, not to a stable where they saw a baby. And he was with his mother Mary, and they then bowed down, listen, and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense, frankincense, and myrrh. And the Scripture tells us that they came to a house, not a stable. In Luke 2, 24, Here's another example of how we can understand that the, it's unlikely, based on the gifts given, that the Magi were at the manger. In Luke 2, 24, we find that Jesus' parents offered two young pigeons at the temple as a sacrifice according to the law. The law was very specific. It should have been a ram, unless they were poor. According to Jewish law, A woman became ceremonially ceremonially unclean on the birth of a child. On the eighth day, a male child was circumcised. This is Genesis 17, 12. After which the mother was unclean 
an additional 33 days, Leviticus 12, 1 to 5. At the conclusion of this period, the mother offered a sacrifice, either a lamb or, if she was poor, two doves or two young pigeons, Leviticus 12, 6 to 8. So 38 days after Jesus was born, Mary went to the temple and offered a sacrifice that only a poor person would offer. This suggests to us that the wise men had yet to visit Jesus at this point. Otherwise, she would have been able to offer a lamb because she would have had the gold to buy it. Interesting. Some of you are looking at me going like, am I in school? Is there going to be a test? No, <laughs> there will not be a test. There will not be a test. But it's unlikely that they were at the manger. Still, if you want the nativity scene with the wise men there because it looks great, by all means, do it. Have it. It's fine. But let's be accurate. And let's be consistent with what was actually going on in the text. Otherwise, we misconscrew the text. What kinds of things do we see in this story that we can then apply to our lives, right? Because this is, this is, all this stuff is great, right? Like, you're Rob, that's great. Thanks for the info. I appreciate knowing a little bit more about these magi, these wise men from the east, and thanks for that, but so what? Right? So what? What's the so what here? Well, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, let's talk about these wise men a little bit more. They had a living faith, that a living faith. There are wise men and women who still step out in true faith and follow Jesus today. A true faith always, listen, true faith always sends us on a journey in life. True faith always sends us on a journey in life. You want the evidence of that? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And again, in Acts, where Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses, true faith always sends us on a journey in life. Is God calling you to follow in a new special way? You see, they had a living faith. They saw a star, they followed it, and they worshiped the king. God rewarded their journey, and they worshiped the king of kings. And in our world today, we still have Herods in our world. We still have leaders in this world that don't honor the Lord, that make it difficult for believers to honor the Lord. Here's an example. Since Prime Minister Narendra Modi came into power in 2014, India has risen from number 28 to number 10 on Open Doors World Watch List. This is a, it's an annual list that talks and measures uh, 50 places around the world where it's hardest to follow Jesus. How many of you are familiar with Compassion Canada? You know, there's a child sponsorship programming. They've been kicked out of India. You know why? Because they're gospel-centered. And they choose to work through the local church to distribute their funds. And so because of that, the prime minister who is um, he's what you would call a Hindu nationalist, wants nothing to do with any organizations that want to work with the church. So he kicked them out. And they're not the only ones, but he kicked them out. Under his leadership, 
Hindu nationalist attacks against Christians have risen. Believers are given fewer rights in some areas, and the government is frequently accused of turning a blind eye to brutal, brutal attacks against religious minorities like Christians. So yeah, we still have our Herods today. In our world today, we still see people who are indifferent to their king. See, here's the thing. We, <laughs> this is so funny to me. Do you remember when President Trump was voted in? Some of you may remember that. There were marches in the streets. There were social media campaigns like crazy. And one of the key things they kept yelling and saying and screaming were, not my president. Right? You remember that? Not my president. Guess what? Still president. And we got people in our world today and throughout human history that were referring to Jesus. They were saying things like, not my king. Except that when you read the Scriptures, we know that every single knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you can think what you want now, but Jesus is King. And because Jesus is King, we recognize that there are people in this world that are indifferent to His kingship. But wise people still seek and find Him today. Wise people still step out in faith today. Wise people still offer their gifts and worship the king. That's what wise people do. But all the gifts in this world wouldn't compare to his gifts for us. Gold represented that he was a king. Frankincense represented that he was God. Myrrh, that he died for our sins, rose again to sit at the right arm of the Father. But wise people seek him. Wise people step out in faith today. Wise people still offer their gifts today. And one of the other things that we learn, which is really important about these wise men, is that after encountering Jesus, listen, they, they were given a dream. So we know that one of the means of knowledge that they were given came in the form of a dream. And I believe that that dream came in a similar way, like Joseph's dream, when he was contemplating about what to do with Mary as to whether or not to marry her. And the angel came to him, remember, in a dream and told him not to be afraid to take her as his wife. I believe it's something similar. I can't prove that, but I believe it's something similar. They had a dream. They went home a different way. Now, of course, this is speaking of physical direction, but doesn't it speak of a spiritual reality as well? When we seek the king, when we offer our gifts and worship the king, do we not always go home a different way? Verse 12. It tells us they departed for their own country by another way. Men who have come to worship Christ through the generations have always gone home another way. You can't go the same way after worshiping Jesus. You're just not the same again. Your direction is different. Here's some examples from Scripture. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 tells us of a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. So Saul of Tarsus was, as it says breathing out fire and threatenings against the church. This is what it says about Saul of Tarsus. Breathing out fire and threatenings against the church. He was willing to kill Christians to preserve the purity of the Jewish religion. But one day, listen, one day he met Jesus. And he was never, ever to be the same again. He went a different way. Indecisive, cursing, hard-boiled fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
when they met Jesus, their lives were transformed. They were never the same again. They went a different way. And in this season that we're wrapping up of Christmas, now I know that many of you, it already feels like Christmas is done, and I get that. But in this season of wrapping up Christmas time, we think of the wise men, and they were wise, but not in the way the world thinks. They were wise men because they were willing to follow wherever God led. They were wiser than the men of the world. They worshiped Christ. They gave their gifts, and they went home a different way. They went home a different way. My encouragement to us would be this. Find the new direction in your life that comes from the result of finding the king. I know that there are many people in this region and maybe even in this room that feel far away from God. That you're here and you come potentially on a semi or even a regular basis and your desire is to feel the presence of God in your life again. You are seeking him. Let me encourage you with the words that we hear from, from the Lord Himself. That if you seek, you will find. If you seek His face, you will find it. But here's what that requires. Stop living for you. Stop waking up every morning and asking the question, what am I going to get out of today for me? You see, to seek and find the face of God, it requires us to surrender to the will of God. So maybe wake up every morning and ask the Lord to show you where He is that day and how you can join Him in what He's doing for His sake rather than yours and rather than mine. Continue to seek Him. That's one thing. But there are many of you here today that maybe you feel the presence of God. And maybe your time with the Lord, you're praying and you're having this enjoyable relationship with God, but to some extent, you're kind of sitting back wondering, okay, Lord, what's next? I've been doing this for so long and we have a decent relationship, but what's my next? What, what do I do? And, and let, me, let me offer this to you in terms of what we learn from the wise men. See, because the wise men sought the Lord, and they found Him, and they worshiped Him. You catch that? You find and you worship. That's what takes place when you seek the face of the Lord. We find Him, we worship Him, and we're never the same after that. But the other thing that takes place here is this, is that the, we see from the story of these wise men is that they stepped out in faith. Let's be honest. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you took a step towards your faith journey and it scared the garbage out of you. It's the last time you took a step forward and you had no idea what was going to come on the other end of it. I know that we have planners in this room and you plan every detail of your life. You're, and if you're like me, you know, you, you've got your life kind of on this phone, right? It's got all the details of all the appointments and all that kind of stuff that you're going to have. When's the last time you just kind of did this and say, okay, Lord, what do you got for me? And whatever it is, I'm going to step into it. 
and not know what was coming on the other side? What, when was the last time you had an experience like Abram where the Lord comes to him and says, come and go to the place that I will show you without asking for the GPS location? See, because we're a people who need to know, aren't we? All right, God, I'm going to step out in faith. You bet. Absolutely. What are we doing? When are we doing it? How long will we be there? When will we be back? How much will it cost me? All right. Once we learn all that, then, Lord, I'm going to go and evaluate it, and I'll come back to you, you know, after I've prayed about it. (laughs) Step out in faith. Do something that requires you to lean on Him in a way that you've not had to do before. Lean on Him in a way you haven't leaned before. How about this? After you've sought Him and worshipped Him, and you've stepped out in faith that causes you to just, you have no choice but to lean on God because you just don't know what's coming. Continue to offer your talents, your spiritual gifts, your time, and your finances, listen, as gifts. As gifts. What if we were able to say, Lord, in my worship of you, I give you my time. Lord, you've given me 24 hours in the day. I want to give you 24 hours in the day as a gift. Use me in whatever way possible. But in my act of worship to you, I give you this gift. You, you want to know my proof for that? Romans 12, chapter 2 specifically. Oh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 2 specifically, where it says, live our lives as our spiritual act of worship. Catch that? Live your life as your spiritual act of worship, which what you could say is live your life as your gift worship to the Lord. The gift of self. What if you give him your time? What about your talents? And maybe you're in the room here and you're saying, oh, I don't even know what I would be able to offer the Lord. Do you know how to change a tire? A lot of you probably do. Anybody work with wood? Any farmers? Anybody know how to do any kind of plumbing or electrical? That's just the guys. I'm sorry, that sounds sexist. I'm sure that there are female plumbers in the room. Any female plumbers in the room? Okay, not sexist. (laughs) Do you know how to sew? Do you know how to take care of kids? Do you know how to be a good husband? Do you know how to be a good wife? Do you know how to be a good parent? Can you read? What are your talents? Can you draw? Can you paint? Can you create? What are your talents? How do you use that for the Lord? How about your spiritual gifts? Do you know what it is? Do you know what your gifts are? If you don't, you've got to take a course that we have called Kazon. It'll help you figure out your spiritual gifts and where to plug in with it. The Lord has gifted you. If you sit here and you think to yourself that, that, no, the Lord hasn't set me apart for anything. No, 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 no. First Peter tells us that every single one of us has been given a gift to use, to be used. Every single one of us. If you check the original meaning, guess what that means? 
Every single one of us. Not complicated. All given a gift to be used for His glory and His kingdom. And how about your finances? Man, this is a tough one for us, right? There are three things that I'm told as a pastor that we're not supposed to really deal with or not talk about very much. Uh, otherwise, we're going to cause problems for people. And that's money, sex, and politics. Welcome to Pathway. We're going to talk about all of that stuff. <laughs> are your finances yours or are they the Lord's? That's a big question. That is a significant question for us to answer. Well, Rob, I work 40-plus hours a week. I've earned every single dollar that I have. Good on you. The Lord has given you the ability to work. He has given you the health to show up and do what you have committed to doing. He gave it to you. Is it yours? I like to think of it this way. And I know that there are many thoughts and topics about the idea of tithing and whether or not it was Old Covenant or New Covenant. Let me just point out that Abram gave 10% to Melchizedek as, an, as part of his worship experience, and that's before the Mosaic Law even came into being. So whether you choose to tithe or give generously and with a cheerful heart as it talks about it in the, in the New Testament as well, either way, the expectation from the Lord is that the finances that we have, we're going to be giving a portion back to Him. But let me say it this way. If you're a tither, here's what it means. You're the caretaker of 90%, but you don't own a dime. And if you're a cheerful giver, then just recognize that whether you're tithing or whether you're cheerful giving, we give to the mission of God. So here's the question I have. Do you own your finances? Or are they the Lord's? And do we use them to further His mission? Here's why I mention this one so much. It's because Jesus did and I think I know the reason why. How many of you, if you're willing to do this, how many of you, by a show of hands, have ever had a difficult time financially? Did you notice that when you did not have enough money in your mind, that you relied on the Lord more? You probably prayed more. You were probably more thankful for what you did have. And did you notice that when you got more money, you began to rely on yourself more? It was your own ability to handle things, your own ability to make good, wise decisions? Curious. Now, I'm not saying everybody in the world should be poor. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we got to recognize that all the time we need to rely on the Lord. And when it comes to our finances, that is a precious gift from Him that He owns. What an incredible gift. You know what it means? It means that He is actually, in fact, our provider. He is absolutely our provider. It means that, it, just as He says, that as the birds of the air do not worry about what they will wear or what they will eat, that we don't need to either. Why? Because He's got us. Are you using your finances in a way that reflects that He is King and Lord and worshipped by you and furthering His kingdom? 
with his finances that you get to be the caretaker of. Continue to offer your talents, spiritual gifts, time, and finances as gifts. And, and, and I'll end with just this one point. When you live wise, or as the wise men did, the world looks different to you and because of you, because of the one who works through you. I'll say it again. When you live wise, the world looks different to you and because of you, because of the one who is working through you. So be a people. Let us be a people in 2020. I love it. 2020. 2020 is perfect vision. So let us have perfect vision in that we seek God. Let us have perfect vision in that we step out in faith. And let us have perfect vision in that we worship, that we offer our talents, our spiritual gifts, our time, our finances as gifts. Because when we live wise, the world looks different to us. The world is different because of us. Because of the one who works through us. Be wise. And walk a new direction. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'm going to invite the worship team to come, I'm uh, sorry, the worship team to come forward and our prayer team to come forward. I know that there are a lot of people who need to commit to a lot of different things, and this morning, maybe you need to commit yourself to seeking Him more. Then why don't you come and receive prayer for that? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to take a step of faith and you're just not sure what it is, then come and receive prayer for that. And maybe you just need the courage and the strength to be able to walk into the idea of offering your talents, your gifts, your time, and your finances as gifts to the Lord. Why don't you come and receive prayer for that? I want to pray with you. We're a community of people. We are the church. We are the ecclesia. We are the fellowship of believers. Oh, that's nice. The people of the way, as we used to be called. Let's do this together. Let's pray together towards these things. While the worship team is leading us, I'm going to invite you to come forward and get prayed, get prayed for. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you, Jesus, that even as we look into this strange story of these wise men, these men of the East, I thank you, Lord, that you have given us evidence in the Scripture to understand certain things about the context, but more importantly, that we understand that the gold was for a king, that the frankincense was the worship of a God, and the myrrh was the representation of the fact that this king, this God, would die on our behalf and sit at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. Would you help us to be a people who seek you? Would you help us to be a people who step out in faith and live our lives as our spiritual act of worship, as gifts in every way to you? In your holy and precious name, amen.